The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. To Ephesians chapter 2 uh, this morning, Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll be reading uh, from verses 1 through 10 this morning. It's always a privilege to be here, to be with Berean Baptist Church, obviously to see family. I, I just, uh, I'm thankful to be here, and I, I'm thankful for the opportunity from Pastor Smith. I know that you're praying for him and his wife, and even we have been thinking and praying for him from Ohio, uh, just as he's recovering and continuing to recover from his back surgery. I know that, I, I, I'm sure, and I know that he would, would love to be here uh, with his congregation. And um, so, But other than that, I'm very thankful for being able to be here and, and just to step in and hopefully be a help this morning. So let's begin by uh, reading Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and uh, we'll begin with verse 1. The scripture says this, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation, that is to say our lifestyle, in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, hath he quickened us us up together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them." This morning, we are going to take a look at a topic that no doubt may be familiar to the professing Christian, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, while many may believe that they understand what the gospel actually is, their explanation of the gospel is far short of what the gospel is according to what Jesus truly says. If I were to stop you and I were to ask, hey, what is the gospel? What would be your response? Well, Maybe some of you would turn to John 3.16. Maybe some of you would turn to Romans 3.23. Would you attempt to quote a verse here or there? Would you say something like, well, God loves you. He wants you in heaven. Or maybe you'd say something like, give your heart to Jesus. He wants to change your life for the better. So often, the gospel is a phrase that Christians use without fully understanding its true significance. You see, we speak the language of the gospel, but we rarely apply and understand the meaning of the gospel. And so this morning, we will seek to understand what it means to be in Christ. Uh, Really, the theme of the book of Ephesians is this thought, the phrase that we as his followers, we as believers, are in Christ. Ephesians shows us that God is 
forming a new humanity through Christ by His Spirit. It describes how Jesus Christ, He died for sinners, He was raised, He is exalted above all of His competitors, and He is now at the head of the universe and the church. Through our union with Jesus Christ, we share in these same events. We are raised with Christ. We are seated with Him according to Ephesians chapter 2, 5 through 7. And this great salvation is owed only to the grace of God. In our passage this morning, we read about how God, in His glorious grace, saves sinners through Jesus Christ alone, ultimately giving them spiritual life. And the focus that Paul makes is not on what we must do, but rather on what God has done through God has done to us or for us through his son Jesus Christ. If there's one thought that you could take away this morning, walk away, I would ask you that you would write this thought down and that is this that God's amazing love, his amazing kindness and his mercy gave us spiritual life by grace through Jesus Christ. God's amazing love His kindness and His mercy gave us spiritual life by grace through Christ. See, Paul in his exquisite explanation of the gospel here in chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians helps us to understand that spiritual life is given to us through grace, but he also shows us this gospel presentation by giving us the reality of our past, our present, and our coming future. So firstly, this morning, the gospel exposes who we were. The gospel exposes who we were. Apart from Jesus Christ, you and I were spiritually dead. Look with me at verses 1 through 3 as we begin this morning. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Paul first begins here in our passage with our pre-Christ past. The picture is not very good. Verse 1 begins with, and you. Well, who is he talking about? Well, specifically in the context of the book of Ephesians, he's talking about the Christians in first century Ephesus. But lest you and I step back and think that the scope of this spiritual deadness or the spiritual dead state was limited to Ephesus, Paul would say that that, that we all are, or the others, according to even verse 3. You see there, uh, where in times past ye walked according, and then you see there in verse 3, among whom also we all had our conversation. Paul covers everyone with these phrases. He's not describing some degraded segment of society. He's not illustrating a picture of Skid Row in L.A. County or maybe even some cannibalistic tribe somewhere. He's not talking about, even as you had just just this past week, someone in prison who has done some terrible, horrible crime. Paul is expressing every single man, every single woman, and every single child and who we were prior to Jesus Christ. We were dead, verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead, in trespasses and sins. 
This thought of being made alive or quickened is actually not in the original Greek, but it's implied within the context and then applied by the translator to bring further clarity. In essence, Paul is addressing those who are saved. He's finished describing in chapter 1, really, our spiritual possessions in Christ, to now the complementary truth here in Ephesians chapter 2, our spiritual position in Jesus Christ. So he says, before Jesus, we were dead. The present tense indicating spiritual death. It was our continual state of death. Perhaps you have heard of the show, The Walking Dead, right? Zombies, that's a a definite thing that we hear in our culture. A lot of uh, talk about zombies, those that appear alive but are really dead, right? Now consider our state apart from Jesus. We were spiritually dead zombies, appearing to be alive, but further from God than we could ever be. This refers to the spiritual condition of those who are unable to attain spiritual life in themselves. Well, why were we dead, Paul? Would you uh, explain a little bit more why we would be considered dead? Well, the scripture says we were dead because of our trespasses and our sins. The word trespasses means to slip, to fall, to stumble, to deviate, to go in the wrong direction. It draws attention to the actions of sin. But then he says that we were dead not only in trespasses, but we were also dead in our sins. This is a more comprehensive account of human evil. Romans 5 would echo this sentiment, wherefore, as one man, sin entered into the world, that would be Adam, and death by sin. And so death has passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Church, sin has infected Every part of our being, our mind, our emotions, our will, our intellect, our moral reasoning, our decision-making, our words and our deeds, no part of our life was exempt from the debilitating effects of sin. And so Paul says, Christians, hey, look, you were dead. You were committing trespasses in a sinful state. You were wretched. You were culpable because of your transgressions and your sins. Paul would explain In chapter 4, just turn a few pages over, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 18. He would explain our pre-Christ state. He would say, having the understanding, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 18, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Now, church, this is the complete opposite of what the world would tell us about ourselves as humans. The world would tell us that we are basically good, right? Pretty okay. If we just believe in ourselves, then really we could just do anything. You see, man's problem is not his environment. Man's problem is his own sinful heart. You see, man's problem is not his past. Man's problem is his present rejection of Jesus Christ. The great Charles Spurgeon sums up Paul's attitude in his message to Christians and Christ followers here in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, look back to what you used to be, to the hole of the pit whence you were digged. Now, a common state of sin, the illustration goes, it's been compared to a group of people, right? Standing on the brink of a wide river, perhaps maybe a mile wide, and each of them is trying to jump to the other side. So you see the little children and the old, older individuals, they can jump only a few feet, right? And you have the larger children, they're trying to get to the other side, so they get the running start, and you see the agile adults are still trying to jump to get to the other side. 
Maybe there's even a few athletes who can jump several times farther still, but as the illustration goes, none of them gets even near the other side. You see, their degrees of success vary only in relation to each other, in relation to achieving the goal. Every individual, no matter how good they are, or how, uh, uh, how maybe nice they are, or maybe how many, every, every, the, all the good things that they might perceive to be done, all of these individuals, whether you're the child or the elderly individual, whether you're the athlete, no matter how far you try to jump to the other side, each one of those individuals are equal failures. This is perhaps the most offensive part of the gospel. It's the reality that you and I are spiritually dead. We're unable to offer any works. We're utterly unable to offer God anything except for genuine repentance and remorse for our sin. So we see here in Ephesians chapter 2, and you hath he quickened, again speaking specifically with the context of the church, you hath he quickened, you were dead in trespasses and sin, all encapsulating moral evil. Verses 2 and 3 continues on with this plight. We were not only dead in our trespasses and sins, but verse 2 starts to uh, continue to unpack this thought that we were disobedient. Look at verse 2. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. This word world comes from the Greek word cosmos, It does not represent the physical creation of our world, what you see around you, but rather the world order, the world system of values, the world's way of doing things. In essence, the world's course. Look at the verse. Where in time past you walked according to the course of the world, the the world order, the system of the world. And as Paul makes clear, the course of the world follows the leadership and the design of Satan, the prince of the power of the air. He continues, according to the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians speaks more about principalities and power than any other New Testament letter, and it draws attention to the power behind them, and the power behind the course of the world is Satan. Literally, the world system falls under the scope of God's sovereign allowance, but directly in the control of Satan's indirect rule. He says, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Notice, that these are not completely possessed by Satan. These individuals are not, those that do not know Christ are not completely possessed by Satan, but they live in a world of darkness in which Satan holds sway. He lays out the bait, sinful people take it, and they continue to disobey God. Paul lays it out and says, you have... I have to recognize this church at Ephesus that you used to be controlled by the world's influences. You used to be controlled by the values of the culture. They were contrary to God's very values. You assumed the attitudes, the habits, the lifestyles of the culture, but you didn't even realize that you were being utterly deceived by Satan himself. You were dead. You were willingly disobedient. But then he goes on, just in more cheery news, to say that you were doomed. You were doomed. Look at verse 3. Among whom also we all, okay, so not just speaking of those in Ephesus there in the church, but all, everybody, had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. I want you to notice those two words there in verse 3. You have also we all, and then you have at the end of the verse of uh, verse 3, as others, even as others. 
So just when we thought our plight might just get a little bit better, right? Our spiritual status could not actually be more tragic. It could not actually be more hopeless. Paul says that we were justly under the judgment of God. One author put it this way. He said, Paul's primary purpose here is not to show how unsaved people now live, though the teaching is valuable for that purpose. But Paul's point is to remind believers how they themselves formally walked and formally lived. See, every believer was once totally lost in the system of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And many in the world think that we're all children of God. We're all God's kids, mostly good and attempting to make progress together. But the Scriptures declare quite the opposite. The Bible states that those who have not received salvation through Jesus Christ are actually, by their very nature, the children of wrath. John chapter 3 would say, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And that person is Jesus Christ. Church, apart from reconciliation, you and I, apart from salvation through Jesus Christ alone, we were on this path. Every person was on the, and is on this path who does not know Jesus Christ. They're on this path by nature through human birth and are literally the object of God's wrath, His eternal judgment and condemnation. How does that sound? Pretty bad. Paul says, remember that. Hey, remember who you were. Remember who you were apart from Jesus Christ. Let this gospel Continue to transform you. Hey, church, remember your pre-Christ state apart from God's love and His deliverance. You would be living out your natural human condition of death and sin, alienation, disobedience, demon control, lust, and ultimately, divine judgment. My fear is that many Christians don't live in the gospel because they're too busy going back to the very slop that they were saved from our lazy and selfish, misinformed version of idolatrous Christianity, a form of Christianity where we have forgotten that it was God who first loved me before I ever loved Him. Bad news. But I'm thankful for verse 4, right? What's the next two words? Read it with me. Verse 4, what does it say? But God. Say that one more time with me, ready? But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, hath he quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved and hath raised us up together and hath made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The bad news is one part of the gospel story. But man, aren't you thankful for the love, mercy, and grace of our Savior Jesus Christ? So firstly, the gospel tells us that, or excuse me, the, the, the gospel tells us through this passage in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are spiritually dead. We're apart from Christ. The gospel exposes who we were. But then the gospel tells us who we are in Jesus Christ. With Christ, with Jesus, we are spiritually alive. God's gracious initiative is contrasted with the reality of who we were before Jesus Christ. We were dead, we were disobedient, we were doomed, but God. 
These verses offer three words that depict the true desperation of man. Mercy, love, and grace. But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath he quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. Mercy, love, and grace. And Paul is just trying to tell the church here this morning, Don't forget the great mercy of your Savior, Jesus Christ. But for God, you would be spiritually doomed. You would be spiritually dead. You were spiritually disobedient. The word mercy comes from the Greek elios. It's much more than just being merciful. Oh, I'll just be nice to this person. Because God instead is dealing with us as those who rightly deserve wrath and judgment. God is dealing with us in compassionate mercy. One author would describe it like this, defining mercy as the self-moved, spontaneous, loving kindness of God which causes him to deal in compassion and tender affection with the miserable and distressed. That's mercy. How about God's love, agape, right? Unconditional, sacrificial love that drew his son to die on the cross for his people. A love that impels one to sacrifice oneself for the benefit of the object that is loved. God, motivated with sacrificial, unconditional love, became the sacrifice for the due justice of sinners like you and I. So we've got mercy, but God for his great mercy, but God for his great love, this unconditional, sacrificial love, but God for his great grace. Now, we need to stop for a moment and distinguish between grace and mercy. Grace is shown to the undeserving, while mercy is compassion to the miserable. Grace, God's unmerited favor, is God's solution to man's sin. Mercy is God's solution to man's misery. Grace is God's solution to man's sin, but mercy is God's solution to man's Misery. Grace covers the sin while mercy removes the pain. Grace forgives while mercy restores. And all of this is accomplished through Jesus' sacrificial love. Justice is getting what we do deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And grace is getting what we do not deserve. God says, because of my great love for you, your penalty has been paid. My law's judgment against you has been satisfied through the work of my son Jesus Christ on your behalf. For his sake, I offer you forgiveness to come to me. You only need to come through Jesus. You and I could never understand God's great love and mercy without understanding the wrath of God. You see, often perspective can be everything, and when our perspective is widened, a true reality is formed. See, this type of forgiveness is not seen in this world. This is a heavenly forgiveness that only comes from God alone, a debt that you and I could not resolve apart from the sacrifice of God's own Son, Jesus Christ. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, 
Berean Baptist, followers of Jesus alike, God is intrinsically kind, merciful, and loving. And in his love, he reaches out to vile, sinful, rebellious, depraved, destitute, and condemned human beings. And he offers them salvation. And then not only that, all the eternal blessings that salvation brings. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18 this morning. Matthew chapter 18, because I think this parable that Jesus himself speaks of just gives a little bit more insight to God's great forgiveness, his mercy, and his love that he extends uh, to those who will receive him. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, we'll read verses 23 and continuing on. Jesus is speaking a parable here, that is to say a story with true-to-life application, right? So he says, therefore is the kingdom of heaven, verse 23, Matthew 18, verses 23. A parable is a story, it's not a truth, it's a, a story that Jesus would tell to his disciple, disciples, his followers, even the Pharisees throughout his time, uh, that like I mentioned just a moment ago, would have a true-to-life application. So while this is not a true story, it's a true-to-life application from the story that he gives, the parable that he gives. Matthew 18, verse 23 says, Therefore, is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants, and we had begun to reckon one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. Now, I know that many of us don't typically go to the store and use talents to purchase our bread and our ice cream, because the ice cream is great, right? So a talent, what is a talent? Well, it would take 16 to 20 years for the average worker to make one talent, okay? So that's about 200,000 hours of work, give or take, I'm estimating on that. So this is, this is roughly about $7.4 billion in our modern American understanding. So here's, here's the story that Jesus is giving, okay, with the true-to-life application. There was a king which would take account of his servants, and we began to reckon one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents, okay? So $7.4 billion. It's a lot of money in modern times, right? Verse 25, but for as much he did not have the money to pay. His Lord commanded him to be sold, his wife, his children, and all that he had, and payment was to be made. The guy owes the king seven billion dollars. He says, all right, time to pay up. So he's like, well, I'm going to have to sell my wife, my children. I'm going to have to be sold everything that I have just to maybe even try to scratch the surface at the debt of seven billion dollars. Verse 26, obviously completely unable to uh, have that debt forgiven. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him saying, Lord, the king, right? Have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of the servant was moved with compassion and he loosed him and he forgave him the debt. This is how God deals with us. Mercifully, graciously, abundant love. And Paul, like we said in this passage, is saying, hey, church, don't forget that. Look at who you were. Right? And understand who you are because of Jesus Christ and the love that God has shown. So that's how God responds, right, to us in our salvation. But then look at verse 28. This is the natural human response. The same servant, the guy who just got the $7 billion forgiven of him, he goes out. You see there in verse uh, 28, he found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. Well, how much is a hundred pence? 
Just quick math, it's about $12,000. So you see the two different sums, $7 billion and $12,000, right? $12,000 is a lot of money, but that's manageable compared to the $7 billion. So the same servant, he goes out and he laid hands on him. He took him by the throat saying, pay me thou what thou owest. I love the, the vividness of our Savior in this parable. He takes him by the throat and says, pay me what you, what, what you owe me. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet. He besought him saying, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. And he would not. But he went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when the fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told their lords all that was done. And the story continues. But what I really want to draw from this passage is just quite the difference about how man responds and how God has responded to us in our destitute, doomed state. Not only did God love enough to forgive, but God loved enough to die for the very ones who had offended him. Compassionate love for those who do not deserve it, makes salvation possible. Scripture says this, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6 says, And he hath raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Continuing on in our passage, He has raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places. If we thought that maybe forgiveness would just be enough, consider this staggering nature of God's work in uniting us with Jesus Christ. Paul says that God raised us up together with Christ in verses 6, and this is a clear allusion to the resurrection of Jesus, ultimately proving that Jesus was deity and that he had the victory over sin and continues to have the victory over sin and death. Paul uses a compound word here to declare that we've been raised together. It's the word synergarian. It's a Greek word that means raised. Obviously, we understand the prefix syn or sync, right? How many of you all have your phones? We sync our phones to the cloud so that we're fully on the same page as our computer, our iPads, our Apple Watches, our everything, right? Sync. It's the kind of the same word here in the Greek, synergirion, which is raised, right? Put on the same page with Jesus Christ. What God did for Christ, he did at the same time for believers. We were raised together to sit together in heavenly places, as the scripture says. We're seated with Christ. Now, in chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul praised God for exalting Jesus above all the powers, above all the forces, And now, Paul is changing gears, church, and he's saying this. He's saying that we are seated with Jesus as well. This means we have a position of uh, superiority and authority over evil powers. It does not mean that we're divine. There's only one that is on the throne. But Paul says that we're seated with him. We have power to overcome, but... We have power to, not to succumb to the dark world or even Satan's scheme, as was mentioned in verse 2, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world. And so Paul, again, reminding the church today, hey, remember where you were and look at what you are now in Christ because of God's great mercy, his great grace, and his great love. Look with me at the passage as we begin to wrap up this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. The scripture says this, a very familiar passage, no doubt, to many of us this morning. For by grace are ye saved through faith, 
that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should post. Now, Paul continues this thought of God's great gift of salvation, but he inserts faith and works into our discussion here this morning. Now, the grammar indicates that the whole of salvation is to be viewed as a gift. Grace, right? Unmerited favor. God's gift of salvation. Paul encourages us that the past reality of the gospel message, that really nothing could be done to earn or merit favor with God apart from Jesus Christ alone. Remember, you are dead, you're disobedient, and you are doomed, according to verses 1, 2, and 3. But God, without the sacrifice of his son Jesus Christ... You wouldn't be where you are. You wouldn't have salvation. You wouldn't be able to uh, help yourself out of this plight. So then he inserts back this thought of works. See, we're not saved because we're smarter than others, that we're more holy than others, we're more gifted than others. We're not saved based upon our religious affiliation. We're not saved based upon our church membership. We're not saved because we give to charity. We're not saved because we're a great neighbor. I have great neighbors. I like to be a good neighbor. It's not why I'm saved. It's not why you're saved. I'm not saved and you don't, you're not in Christ. You don't have salvation because you keep the Ten Commandments. Because you can't. None of us can. We're not saved because we live by the Sermon of the, on the Mount. That has no power to bring salvation. Church membership doesn't. Giving to charity doesn't. Being a good neighbor doesn't. Keeping the Ten Commandments. They have no power. There's no salvific power in any of the things that we do. The only thing a person can do that will have any part in salvation is to believe and repent and trust in Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ has done for him. Ephesians chapter 1 says, In whom you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Paul says, hey, it's, it's by grace that you're saved. It's not of yourselves. There's nothing you could offer God. It's a gift of God. It's not of works that any man should boast. And why? Why is it that we can't offer anything to God? Because there's only one who can and should be exalted in this salvation. And that is who? That's God alone. We have not worked for it. And we cannot therefore brag about ourselves and what we have done. God in his grace sent Christ to live the life that we could not live. God in his grace sent his son Jesus to die the death that we should have died. And God sent his son in grace to rise on our behalf. God raised Christ and us with him He has seated us in the heavens, as the scripture says, and the glory goes only to God alone. So, firstly, we were dead. We're doomed apart from Christ. I am doomed. The gospel tells us who we were. Secondly, the gospel tells us who we are. We are with Christ. We are spiritually alive in Him. We're sitting in heavenly places. What a privilege. What an awesome opportunity. Nothing that we could have done or offered to get to that point outside of God and His great rich mercy and His great love wherewith He loved us. But then thirdly this morning and finally, the gospel tells us who we will become. The gospel tells us who we will become. In Christ, we are His workmanship. 
Paul first emphasizes how salvation is a gift, but then he turns to how true salvation results in good works, not the other way around. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 7, read with me. It says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Right after saying that works cannot save us, Paul notes the importance of works, right? He, he doesn't want us to think that works are unimportant. He states that works simply are not the root of our salvation, but rather works are the fruit of our salvation. The grace that is freely given is the grace that transforms us and ultimately conforms us into the very image of Jesus. See, the Reformers used to say, it is faith alone that justifies but faith that justifies can never be alone. And I love that, right? It's faith alone that justifies, but faith, a faith that justifies can never be alone. We're not saved by faith plus works, but a faith that does not work is a red flag. We have a living faith, a functioning faith. Now that we belong to God, God is working on us and in us so that we might work through, so that He might work through us. And that's why Paul would say that we are His workmanship. You see, the gospel teaches us that works do not save the believer, but rather works prove a believer's profession of faith in Jesus Christ. No good works can produce salvation, but many good works are produced by salvation. Does that make sense? No good works can produce salvation, but many good works are produced by salvation. And this is the crux of the difference between many different works-based systems. It's always works plus Christ equal righteousness. But you see, the biblical view of works is not that. The scriptures declare that Christ provides our righteousness, enabling us to produce fruit. Thus, as we mentioned just a moment ago, The works are not the root of our salvation, but rather the works are the fruit of our salvation. You might not believe me, but James speaks of this in James chapter 2, 17 through 26. Turn with me there to James chapter 2. I promise you I have two more paragraphs. We're almost there. James chapter 2. You're doing great. You're listening well. James chapter 2. James chapter 2, 17 through 26 says, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well, the devils also believe, and they tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that work, I'm sorry, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works? And by works with, was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God. It was imputed unto him for righteousness. He was called the friend of God, not based upon his works, but based upon his trust in God. Verse 24, you see then how by works a man is justified. 
and not by faith only. Likewise, also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. This passage helps us to understand that faith comes before works, but works being the, the fruit of our salvation, right? So the root of salvation is our faith. The fruit is the works. I like what Paul says here. He says that we're his workmanship. Those that are in Christ are his workmanship. This is the word poema. It's how we derive the word poem, or maybe even a beautiful piece of literary workmanship. And God says, literally, those that are in Christ are his workmanship, his, his piece of, 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 of literature, his, his poem, his story of, of grace and mercy and love, working through the lives of his people. Romans eight twenty nine would say, these good works are expected... Well, I'm sorry, excuse me. According to Romans 8.29, these good works are expected because God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that's why James says that faith is illegitimate if works are not present. See, before time began, God designed us to be conformed to the image of his Son. One author put it this way. He said, faith is a divine work in us. It changes us and makes us to be born anew of God kills the old Adam and makes us altogether a different man in heart and spirit and mind and powers. It brings with it the Holy Ghost. Oh, our faith, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. And so it is impossible for it not to do good works incessantly. It does not ask whether there are good works to do, but before the question rises, it has already done them and it always is doing of them. You see, Paul's primary message here is still to believers, many of whom who have experienced salvation years prior. He's not showing them how to be saved, per se, but how they were saved in order to convince them that the power that saved them is the same power that continues to sanctify them. Church family, God's amazing love, his kindness, and his mercy gave us spiritual life by grace through Jesus Christ. When we think about the gospel, there's really only two responses that can be had. Number one, the question has to be asked, have you believed and trusted in Christ alone to save you from your sin? By grace alone, just Christ alone. No Christ plus works, no Christ with church membership, no Christ and I keep the Ten Commandments, not, not that. No Christ alone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And works? No, no, in Christ alone. So the question really is, have you believed that? Have you believed the gospel? Have you trusted in Christ alone to save you from your sin? But then the second question that we have to ask as his followers, as the church today, is when people see you, do they say, man, this is a work of God? This is Christ working through fill-in-the-blank person sitting in our congregation today. Do you rely on the gospel for God's grace to conform you into his image? 
The question we have to ask when we come to a pastor like that, Christ has done a wonderful work in us for salvation, but are we quenching what he would like to continue to do in our life? When people see, do they see a work of God? Do they see Christ actively changing your life? Why, church? Because we're his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus, and we're created unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for your great grace, mercy, and love. God, we were dead, thinking we were alive, but following the course of this world. We were disobedient. God, we were doomed. There was no hope for us to have eternal life. There was no hope for us to have our sins forgiven, our trespasses taken care of, apart from Jesus Christ. But God, you loved us first, and therefore we have the opportunity to love you. And God, as a church today, certainly we'd say, simple message, we know the gospel, but God, I pray that every single one of us here in this congregation would just be reminded of where we were, where we are, and where we're going. Lord, we're thankful for the reality that your amazing love, kindness, and mercy gave us spiritual life by grace through Christ. And, and God, I pray, if there's anybody here in this room who would look at your scripture and would think, you know, I, I believe about Christ, I know about Christ, I kind of know the gospel, but I don't believe I've ever fully trusted in him, repented of my sin, and turned, and by faith and through grace, trusted in Jesus Christ alone. God, I pray that those individuals, that person, that whoever, if there is someone like that today, God, I pray that they would reach out. Lord, in the quietness of their heart, at another time, they would talk with someone more about what your scriptures have to say. But God, we plead and we are thankful for your grace. We're thankful for the love, kindness, and mercy and the spiritual life that you've given us through Jesus Christ. Lord, may we never forget that. May we walk into tomorrow, our Monday, thinking of your goodness and grace towards us, your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.